you're on with Lauren Zayu for Unbossed, Unbothered, and Unfiltered, a show about what you say, how you say it, and what to do after it's said. We'll talk about communications and messaging blunders, successes, distractions, and what all of it means for you. Join me for a crash course in what you need to know in politics and issues driving the 2020 elections. Hello and welcome to Unbossed, Unbothered, and Unfiltered. I'm your host, Lauren Zayu. As it currently stands, it is 5.08 p.m. Eastern Time on Thursday, November 5th. Polls closed over 24 hours ago across the country, and we do not know who will be the next president of the United States. It's also unsure who will control the United States Senate. And the path to 270 goes through Pennsylvania, Arizona, Nevada, and North Carolina. But today's conversation is about the record turnout set in Texas, particularly Harris County. Chris Hollins, an attorney and fourth-generation Houstonian, is serving as the first Black Harris County clerk. Before taking office, he was principal attorney at Hollins Law Group and stepped away from private practice to dedicate his full commitment to public service and the duties of this office. Chris developed a commitment to public service through the selfless example of his parents and their devotion for improving the lives of others. County Clerk Chris Hollins has been on the front lines of making sure every vote is counted in this election, and I'm glad to have him here to talk about it. Without further ado, I'd like to welcome to Unbossed, Unbothered, and Unfiltered, Harris County Clerk Chris Hollins. Hello, how are you? Hey, Lauren, good evening. How are you doing? I'm doing well, and I'm really glad you could join me. Um, So just kind of taking it from the top uh, with your background and how you got started and how your tenure has been um, in Harris County. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think you mentioned uh, born and raised in in Houston, Texas, have uh, deep family roots going back uh, many, many years here in Houston. Uh, And so Houston has always been uh, my city. Uh, you know, I went to Morehouse. I know that you went to Spelman and I stayed on the East Coast to work and go to graduate school for a few more years. But my heart was always here uh, in Texas, but more particularly Houston and Harris County. And uh, and so was was able to move back here about six years ago, uh, continue the work that I was doing at the time, which was as a management consultant, uh, you know, in that role. And, you know, it'll sound pretty familiar with what I did here as county clerk, which, you know, I served large government organizations. And I would come in and I'd bring a small team with me. And this government organization would be facing an extremely steep challenge, one that they could not you know, get a handle on themselves, which is why we were there. Uh, we'd bring in best practices from across the world. Uh, we would bring in uh, you know, data analysis and, and things of that nature, um, help them come up with innovative solutions to these tough challenges, but also practical solutions uh, that, the, that the public servants who were in those organizations could take and use to, to shape the future, solve the issues that they were facing, uh, and make sure that those that those folks were equipped with the tools and the resources that they need to be successful. And so, you know, I did that for a number of years, both uh, in Atlanta, right after Morehouse, and then after graduate school back here in Houston. Uh, but then we had my my daughter uh, just a few years ago. She's about to turn four years old. And at that point, you know, traveling to D.C., uh, you know, where I had clients in the Pentagon and traveling to New York and other cities in the East uh, where I had you know government clients uh, was not what I wanted to do anymore. I wanted to be with my family. And so at that point, you know, I took the leap. Uh, I started my own law firm and have been doing that ever since. I'm a plaintiff's attorney. And so, you know, what that means in a nutshell is that my clients are always the little guy fighting against the big guy 
for justice uh, and have been, you know, doing that work and, and enjoying it thoroughly. Uh, but then earlier this year, in the middle of, you know, nowhere, it was really like it was a weekend. It was Saturday around 4 p.m. Uh, my predecessor, Dr. Diane Troutman, you know, suddenly announced that she was resigning. Uh, and she was doing so for health reasons related to COVID-19. She's, you know, she's 70 years old and I believe had, you know, some some pre-existing conditions. And there we were, you know, we as, as Houston community, Harris County, we were coming up on uh, two elections. I mean, we, had, we still had a runoff election from March that had been postponed to, uh, to July. And then, of course, we had the November general election that we're sort of still in right now. And so those, those were coming up. They were expected to be the biggest elections in history. Now we were facing it under the time of COVID-19. And now we didn't have a chief elections officer in Harris County. And, uh, and that's where I stepped in. I, you know, given my consulting background, given, you know, how important this was to our community, uh, you know, I, I raised my hand and I said, hey, is there anything that I can do to help? Um, whether it's serving in this seat uh, and performing this role myself or helping whoever does. And, uh, you know, I was you know, fortunate enough to to be appointed and I took office on June 1st. Oh wow! So we are we're early in your your I guess tenure where this is you're presented with this issue. I mean, I think um, so. You know, I'm originally from Dallas. I completely identify with uh, the heart always, always being in Texas. You know, as Texans, we have a lot of state pride, uh, and so I definitely see your point there. I wanted to mention though that Governor Abbott, I guess, kind of like the the first spotlight for voter suppression in Texas nationally for a lot of people was Governor Abbott's uh, one one county per box or box per county um, for, for dropping off ballots. And that, and even then Harris County was in the spotlight because I believe y'all have almost 5 million residents. Right, 4.7 uh, million. 4.7 million. And he's saying you get the same size as, you know, these counties with significantly less population. And so kind of talk to me about how your office, once you received that information, like what y'all's first thought was and like process and, and how to advocate for your community. Yeah. Well, you know, attempts at voter suppression have, have been taking place in this country and in, in the state of Texas for, for longer than you and I have been alive by, by a long shot, right? This is, this is nothing new, but normally that stuff happens like in smoke-filled rooms. There are decisions that are made that affect you. You never even know that they were made, but, but there's, those folks are essentially shaving off votes and disenfranchising people little by little by little. I think what people were a little bit less accustomed to, and maybe our grandparents were accustomed to it back in the Jim Crow times, but here in, in 2020, when we're supposed to be living, you know, uh, in, in a, a fairer place and uh, a more equitable place, people have never seen attempted voter suppression that were just so blatant, just thrown in your face. You know, Houston is larger. I mean, pardon me, Harris County, larger a landmass than the entire state of Rhode Island. Right. It's just a, a huge place, you know, almost five million residents. And you're saying, OK. If you live in the northeast, northwest corner of the county, you have to drive over a 100 mile round trip to drop off your mail ballot. You know, if you're scared to put it in the mail, 
And that's after another blatant attempt at voter suppression by our president uh, to dismantle the United States Postal Service. And so, you know, I think that pissed a lot of people off. Uh, but it it just became so, so, so obvious. And, you know, of course, look, we had been experiencing stuff like this for some time. This was this was not the first you know legal challenge that was faced in my office. But but that's when people started to pay attention. And so we went from 12 locations uh, across Harris County where our voters could drop off their mail ballots to one. And we did so overnight. Uh, and that was extremely unfair, extremely prejudicial. And the people who it affected most were our seniors and our voters with disabilities, which which makes it even worse. The, the, you know, the folks who, you know, my job is to protect the right to vote for everybody, right? But of course, I'm going to be looking at the folks who have the most disadvantages uh, to understand how we can help them uh, the most and, and provide access to them and ensure that access. And so when you have folks with disabilities, uh, when you have seniors who we all know are most susceptible to, to COVID-19 and other issues during this time uh, and usually find it harder to get around, that is infuriating. And so, um, and, and again, it, it wasn't just to me. I mean, there were thousands upon thousands of people who were affected and, and you know, people were rightfully angered by this action. Definitely. Absolutely. I mean, and in that same vein, I know there was an issue with some drive-through voting, right? So you attempt to be accessible and do drive-through voting. And there appeared to be a host of pushback on that too. Can you kind of walk walk us through like what happened there? Absolutely. And so to take us back a little bit, you know, when I took office in June, you know, we had an election coming up. In fact, the election back in July, it started four weeks to the day after my first day in office. And so we had to move very, very quickly. Uh, to try and get things in place. And we put together what was called the Safe Elections Plan. And that was an acronym. It stood for Safe, Secure, Accessible, Fair, and Efficient. So during the time of COVID-19, but also during the time when we knew we were going to have a record-setting election uh, you know, to begin with, how do we make sure that all these people can participate? Uh, and one of the ideas that flowed out of that was drive-through voting. You know, So we have the Texas Election Code which says the only, the only rule about how to have an election and where to have an election is that during early voting, it has to be inside a structure. And so we said, okay, we can build these really big structures, you know, a building that has a door the size of a vehicle and that vehicle can drive right through, park inside the building and vote. Um, and that will be safer for them because there will be, you know, they don't have to interact with other voters in line. Uh, they'll interact with a single election worker instead of, you know, dozens of election workers that are kind of milling about your normal walk in space. And uh, and and this will be safer and more convenient for these voters. And so we piloted that back in July and the pilot was phenomenal. The people who used it, you know, we took a survey afterwards because we were trying to get constructive feedback. They rated their experience a nine point seven out of ten, just like through the roof. Right. And uh, and said, yeah, we absolutely want this service to be available in November. And so we did it. We scaled it up. We had 10 locations around town. People loved it. Uh, of our voters, nearly one in 10 in-person voters during the early voting period cast their ballots using drive through voting. It was it was one hundred and twenty seven thousand people. And so and, and, you know, I went out and visited all these sites. 
and I would talk to a voter if they, you know, if they had a moment. And the number one question I got was, why didn't we have this service sooner? And the number two question was, can you promise me we're going to have this again? Uh, and so, yeah, you know, voters loved it and, and rightfully so. And, and, and the election workers love working there because they saw, uh, you know, the smiles on those folks' faces. They saw the, the mother with her small children who said, I wouldn't have been able to vote if I couldn't just easily drive through here. Um, you know, they saw the, the veteran with PTSD who said, you know, I just I have issues being around a bunch of people. Being able to come and vote this way made it made it convenient for me. And I was able to take part in this election. And there were so many other stories like that. It was truly inspiring. But then you have some folks who said, hey, I don't like people voting, especially if they're black and brown, um, you know, if they speak another language. And so, you know, they did some math and they said, it looks like, you know, the way these numbers are going at these drive through voting locations, those don't favor my candidate or my party. And so why don't we throw all those votes out? And, you know, even though there are Democrat votes in there and Republican votes in there, I think I think there's probably more Democratic votes in there. And so it'll, it'll help my guy if we throw all of them out and just disenfranchise these hundred and twenty seven thousand people. And and I don't know how these folks look in the mirror, you know, or, you know, even talk to their kids at night with these extremely just evil aims. But that's what they tried to do. And they they took us to the Supreme Court. Uh, the Supreme Court threw it out. They took us to the Supreme Court again. The Texas Supreme Court threw the case out again. And then they took us to federal court. Um, and that was sort of the pressure point where the day before the election, we're sitting in a court. Uh, and by the way, as you might know, the Texas Supreme Court has nine members. All nine of them are Republicans. And so I think when they were taking us to the Texas Supreme Court, they were hoping that these judges would just ignore the Texas election code and just hand it to them. Uh, but, but, you know, fortunately for our state and our country and the state of our democracy, those judges did the right thing and, and threw this frivolous lawsuit out. But then they went to the federal courts and they said, OK, we just got. You know, Judge Barrett, Justice Barrett appointed to the Supreme Court. We can appeal this thing all the way up and we're going to have a Supreme Court who, who votes our way. And the judge who they got in federal court was uh, a judge by the name of Judge Hannon, who was appointed by George W. Bush and who I don't know very well, but he's viewed as being deeply conservative. And so they thought, OK, we got a lucky draw. We're going to get this judge to throw out these hundred twenty seven thousand votes, something that is totally unprecedented in American history. But again, this judge, this judge took an oath the same way that I took an oath as an elected official uh, that said that he was going to preserve and protect uh, and defend the Constitution and law of the United States. And so when he heard this case, I mean, he he literally laughed and just said, hey, guys, I'm not buying this. And we had a long hearing, but he made it pretty clear early in the hearing that there's no way I'm throwing these 127,000 votes out. And so democracy won uh, and the rule of law won. And uh, and Texas voters won. And that was really, really exciting. I mean, Monday was was one of the greatest days that I've had in a long, long time. It definitely sounds like it. I mean, so when you say they took you to court, who who was suing you? Was it like the Texas GOP? Originally, it it was the Texas Republican Party, as well as the Harris County Republican Party. Um, They took us to the Texas Supreme Court. That got thrown out the first time. And then at that point, 
the Texas, the Texas Republican Party either said we have no chance in hell of winning or they said, you know, <laughs> we realize that voters aren't going to like us for doing this. And so they stepped aside. But some of the individual uh, plaintiffs that have been involved, which is just this like knucklehead, like Looney Tune doctor from Katy, Texas, uh, some woman who was you know running for judge, uh, some some you know very right wing conspiracy theorist, state representative, um, and then another gentleman who was running for Congress who I think is actually a decent guy, but just somehow got pawned or <laughs> coerced by these people. These were the plans in his lawsuit, just this random band of misfits who apparently hate voting. And um, but, you know, they came with the, the, you know, the power and the support of the Texas Republican Party. And, you know, they were Republican operatives who were filling out um, affidavits saying, you know, all this fraud is happening and drive through voting. You know, they were just making all kinds of just weird allegations. There was a woman who was on Snapchat when she voted. And it's like, and the judge is listening to this like, okay, you want me to throw out 127,000 votes because a woman was on Snapchat when she voted? Like, get out of my courtroom. Uh, And that was, I mean, he was a respectful and professional judge, but the the undercurrent, like the tone in that room was just like, this is absurd. And, um, And so justice won out. And we're glad it did. Uh, kind of transitioning into another area I wanted to ask you about. So uh, Texas, and we know this, the major metro areas in Texas have been blue for a while. Dallas, Houston, San Antonio, Austin, and El Paso. Um, and so my question is, uh, we've seen an increase in voter suppression kind of as that's spread. So initially when it was just the major cities, I feel like people thought it was safe enough. But as Texas has become more purple um, coming up from the border and as our metro areas expand, we're seeing a much more concentrated effort in voter suppression. Uh, there was a lot of conversation in 2016 about Texas being a potential swing state. There was a lot of conversation this year in the past weeks about Texas being a swing state. And what do you kind of think like as someone who was on the ground there about Texas's future? future as as a swing state in that way? Uh, Yeah, well, Texas is extremely diverse and Harris County in particular, extremely diverse and and, and changing rapidly. I mean, in the past four years, you have close to two million people who have moved to Texas. Um, And in that same time frame, I mean, Houston has become one of the, the youngest, the most diverse cities, period, in the country. And people don't know that. I mean, I think if you live on the coast, you're like, oh, Texas, I mean, it's just a bunch of people in cowboy hats walking around. Uh, And that's not the case. I mean, Houston has a thriving, you know, West African community, Vietnamese community, Chinese community, Korean community, Jewish community. I mean, you you name uh, Muslim community, South Asian community, Um, extremely diverse city and and the suburbs are diverse as well. Um, And so that's going to change the way that that voting, you know, takes place here in the state. And so, you know, you go back to 2012 with Obama, Uh, Obama lost. And of course, we know that he won that race nationwide. Obama lost Texas by 16 percent. And then you jump forward to Hillary just four years later. And, uh, you know, of course, Hillary won the popular vote, but lost the election nationwide. She lost Texas by nine percent. So she's like a seven point improvement on Obama. And she spent zero dollars in Texas. This was just 
just straight up people showing up and, 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 and pressing a button or pulling a lever or whatever you, you call it in voting. And then you jump forward to this year and you're talking about five or six percent. And, you know, Joe Biden did more than zero in Texas, but didn't do a whole lot. I mean, he probably spent. 13 cents per per resident of Texas, you know, on, you know, whereas in a state like Wisconsin, that's probably like ten dollars per resident or something. I'm making these numbers up, but that's truly the magnitude of, of spending. And so you just have this natural movement towards the middle. And um, because of that, if you're going to win in Texas going forward as a statewide candidate or a national candidate, you're going to have to pay attention to Texas and invest resources in Texas. And so I see I think a lot of dollars are going to be poured into Texas. Uh, I think even now people are before before 2018 with with you know Beto O'Rourke and Ted Cruz, it was you know elections around Texas were quiet. It was just like oh it's a red state, no reason to even run a commercial over there. Now folks are inundated with commercials, getting text messages from all kinds of different uh, you know candidates and parties or whatever else. I'm sure you've witnessed this yourself and been like, how do these people get my number? But like that's that's what it feels like to be in a battleground state, right? Those folks who were in Iowa doing the primary, when they have every candidate that comes through their town and so forth, that's what it feels to be like in a battleground state. And Texas is uh, is certainly there. And it's going to be even more contentious going forward. I agree. I definitely think it's going to be contentious going forward. And like one of my concerns um, is that what Governor Abbott is trying or tried in this election, like that could be, repl- depending on what happened, could be replicated in his own election um, or re-election bid coming in 2022. Um, mm-hmm. We're also hoping to, to you know, make him a one-term governor. Um, but and the um, funny thing about Greg Abbott is that he very likely will see a primary in his own race because there are folks on his side that think he's not conservative enough. You know, even having one drop off location was too much for them. Right. <laughs> they actually sued him. And I'm not kidding here. These same people who sued me for drive through voting, you know, earlier in the summer when, when fewer people were paying attention, uh, I sent Governor Abbott a letter and I said, hey, because of COVID-19, we need to spread these people out when they're voting. And so we need more early voting days. And so he changed the number of early voting days from 12 to 18, uh, which was a good thing. And I applauded that. And it was it was a great kind of bipartisan solution. Um, he was sued by Republicans and saying that uh, adding more days to vote was illegal and and that decision should be reversed by the courts. And again, and again they lost that one, too. But these these crackpots, you know, they're 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 serious uh, as absurd as they might be. They are serious. And so I think he's going to be challenged. Uh, from his right by someone, you know, who is, you know, anti-immigrant, anti-healthcare, uh, anti-voting, all of the above. And we'll, we'll see how it goes. That is wild to think about to the right of Governor Abbott. That's that's scary. Um, but uh, just kind of about something that you've learned in your time as clerk thus far. What do you feel like you well, one, we know this cycle was unlike any other cycle. So I really feel like this is a question for any official who um, who either campaigned or uh, presided over elections this cycle. But what do you feel like you learned that you'll definitely take forward uh, either in your public service or even as, as your position as clerk? You know, well, I won't necessarily say something that I learned, um, 
but it's something that was reinforced. Uh, a couple things, you know, one is that when you're doing something good um, in this society and you're doing it at scale in a way it's going to affect a lot of people, uh, you're not going to be able to do that without a fight. Um, there's going to be some somebody, some organization, some group who that change ticks them off for one reason or another. Uh, and they're going to do whatever they can to get in your way. And you just have to be prepared for that uh, at every corner uh, and be able to handle that you know, gracefully and reasonably, but not lose uh, your level of ambition, not lose uh, the vision for what you're trying to accomplish. Um, you know, change don't come easy. Uh, so that's number one. And then, but the other thing, number two, is is that if you're doing the right thing and you're doing it with a group of people that are in it for the right reasons, then you're going to win. Uh, you might not win in that exact moment, but taking it over the longer arc, you know, you know, Dr. King, uh, you know, said that the arc of history is long, but it bends toward justice. Right. And we're talking about a man who himself was murdered in cold blood for, for what he was trying to do. Uh, and, and so it certainly exemplifies uh, what I'm saying here. But if you if you're doing it for the right reasons, you're doing it with, uh, you know, again, people who are dedicated to that mission, uh, then it's going to it's going to be successful. And you just have to, again, stay patient. You have to work together. You have to make sure you have a good plan and make sure you're following that plan and make sure that you're disciplined. Um, but if you do those things, you'll come out on top. OK, and my final question to sort of wrap us up Um is what uh, I guess you've been in this position. You said your first day was June first. Today is November fifth. If you were to give uh, new county clerk Collins advice on June first <laughs> about what was coming, what would it be? Oh man, um, you know I, I think we 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 did it right. Um, you know, from the very beginning, we. You know, the first thing that we did is, is listen and do our homework. Um, in my first week in office, I had 40 one on ones with staff across, you know, from senior staff all the way to frontline staff uh, in my organization. Uh, roughly one in 10 folks in my organization. I spoke to them one on one for a half hour and said, tell me everything that we're doing great. Tell me everything that we're not doing great. And let's talk about together how we can solve that. Um, you know, I, I started getting a pulse. For you know the morale within my 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 organization, which is you know our full time organization is about three hundred and fifty people, and so getting a getting a handle on that really quickly was a challenge, but was something that was necessary because I couldn't just be some stranger who came in and said, "All right, y'all, follow me." You know, I I had to know them um, and and know where where they wanted to be going, and you know I was leading from the front, but doing it with their ideas and putting them into practice. Um, and so I think, you know, we did the right thing there. We, you know, we took in all sorts of outside advice, um, civil rights groups, voting rights groups, voters themselves, other elected officials, just to say, what are you seeing out there? What could we be doing better and differently? And that's how our safe elections plan came together. Um, you know, people, a lot of so many people, how did you come up with the idea of drive through voting? How did you come up with the idea of 24 hour voting? I didn't come up with any of it. Right. 
I just talked to like hundreds of people in a very short amount of time. And I took the best ideas and said, let's run with these and let's figure out how to operationalize them. And so, you know, there are things on the margins. Um, you know, we when I came in, I made a pledge. Um, you know, I made a couple of pledges, one that I wouldn't run for the office, that I would just focus 100 percent on on doing the job Two, that I wasn't going to fire anybody. Um, I was going to take the group of folks who we had. I would bring in some more people with me. But I was going to just, you know, work with the folks that we that, you know, that were already there doing this great work and who were deeply committed. Um, and I don't regret you know, either of those decisions. Um, I think had I been campaigning any hour that I had spent going out to people saying, hey, let me have your vote. That's an hour that wasn't going to be spent on on making this the best election in the history of Texas. And uh, I think we got there because I was, you know, I and my team were so focused on getting it right. A lot of sleepless nights. I probably would have told myself, sleep now because you ain't going to be sleeping later on. Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm very, very pleased with how we did it. Um, as we're getting to the twilight here, I'm certainly going to sit down and think about things that, um, you know, that we still could have done better. And, you know, when I'm, when I'm handing off the reins to my successor, giving, um, giving her a recommendation or a set of recommendations for here are the things that we need to be doing going forward. Here are the things that we still could continue to improve. And so it's, it's just all about getting better uh, every day. Um, but it's about getting that plan in place, you know, early, sticking to it, making adjustments when you need to, but just, just having that vision for where you're headed. And we were able to do that successfully early and then just move, move down and execute our plan. Sounds good. Sounds really good. Um, Chris, I've enjoyed you so much today. Uh, I really appreciate you responding to me and coming on. And in the event that people want to see more of your work or follow you moving forward, what's the best way they do that? Yeah, so I'm on social media at C.G. Hollins, and that's Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. My Twitter's probably a little bit more political, uh, but on Instagram, you can like see my kids and see what I'm having for breakfast and all that stuff. Uh, you know, I've I've had the privilege of uh, hanging out with uh, with Bun B and Common lately because they were doing amazing voting rights work. And so my, my Instagram is, you know, maybe a little bit more interesting. The Twitter, if you just want the hardcore government voting rights stuff, uh, check me out there. Okay. Well, I hope to have you back soon. And maybe by then we'll know who the president will be. Um, but if you don't mind, I'm going to go ahead and wrap here. That was this episode of Unbossed, Unbothered, and Unfiltered. If you're interested in following me, you can follow me at, at Lauren Zayu on Instagram and Twitter. And you can subscribe to Unbossed, Unbothered, and Unfiltered on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. Thank you for joining us on this journey. Thank you for tuning in to Unbossed, Unbothered, and Unfiltered with host Lauren Zayu and music by Lighthouse Productions. For more information on Unbossed, Unbothered, and Unfiltered, or to review today's episode, please follow at Lauren Zayu on Twitter and Instagram, or subscribe to the Lauren Zayu YouTube channel.